Sometimes a wild god comes to the table. He is awkward and does not know the ways of porcelain, of fork and mustard and silver. His voice makes vinegar from wine. When the wild god arrives at the door, you will probably fear him. He reminds you of something dark that you might have dreamt, or the secret you do not wish to be shared. He will not ring the doorbell. Instead, he scrapes with his fingers, leaving blood on the paintwork, though primroses grow in circles round his feet. You do not want to let him in. You are very busy. It is late or early, and besides, you cannot look at him straight because he makes you want to cry. The dog barks, the wild god smiles and holds out his hand. The dog licks his wounds and leads him inside. You are listening to The Loom, a podcast series featuring folktales, myths, legends, and lore. My name is Genevieve, and I am delighted to be your host. This series is brought to you courtesy of my patrons on Patreon, without whom its existence would not be possible. If you would like to explore extended materials, or if you just want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash songs for dark times. Today we are joined by one of my absolute favorite poets and storytellers, the incomparable Tom Hirons. Um, well, let's start with the simple answer. My name's Tom Hirons. Uh, I live in South Devon in the UK, uh, not far from Dartmoor, um, a beloved wild place, one of the few remaining uh, reasonably wild places in southern England. Mm. Um, and uh, ostensibly, I'm a, a writer. Uh, I write some, some poems. Mm -hmm. And I write a bit of prose now and again, and I tell stories uh, for Hedgespoken uh, Travelling Storytelling Theatre, which is the outfit that myself and my partner Rima Staines run, uh, and which is housed on the back of a vintage Bedford lorry uh, that we converted about six, five, six years ago, something like that. and lived in and traveled and told tales to whoever would listen to them and we now live in a house uh, but the truck is parked in the drive out there and we've been telling tales from that recently those are the simple answers to that question um before we get into anything too metaphysical um excellent but yeah and i'm really happy to be here well i'm absolutely honored to have you here um okay first uh question what is the earliest story uh, you remember hearing or encountering as a child? Or I guess as an adult, if you like. No, 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 as a child. It was, it's funny enough, I was talking about this uh, uh, about a week ago um, because we were telling uh, the story that I remember being the first 
kind of folktale that I heard anyway. And it's probable that I heard other ones before that. Um, but the one that uh, sticks in my memory is a story called Vasilisa the Beautiful, uh, which is a Russian folktale, um, which mm. I'm guessing you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and is really the classic Russian tale in which um, a heroine, Vasilisa, who's not only beautiful, she's she's extraordinarily um, fortunate and powerful in her own right. Mm -hmm. She has a doll that tells her um, all kinds of wise things and helps her um, fulfil her work when she's being treated very badly by her stepsisters and her stepmother. Um, but the kind of the real meat of the story is her encounter uh, with Baba Yaga in the woods or Baba Yaga, mm -hmm. um, who is this just utterly amazing character from, from Russian folk tales and kind of Russian um, kind of myth really, who is the kind of the, the um, Mostly the devouring witch of the dark woods uh, and a terrifying encounter for anyone who comes across her. Uh, but she also has extraordinary powers and uh, aids those who come to her and approach her in the right kind of style and with the right mixture of truth and a bit of chutzpah as well. Um, so she's she's a, a, a fantastic character. And I remember my mother uh, reading some stories that she had brought back from Russia uh, when she lived there in the in the 60s. And she came back with these books of Russian folk tales mm. and must have been about six years old, I guess, hearing that one for the first time. Uh, and some other stories I remember from that book, um, Go I Know Not Where, Fetch I Know Not What, mm. um, uh, Finis the Falcon. Um, but yeah, all the, these Russian folk tales were kind of, they formed, I think, a, a big part of my, my cosmology uh, in that, that time. And then kind of, then I kind of forgot about them for a long time yeah. uh, until I started telling them. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. <laughs> Okay. How about you? Um, well, it's a bit odd. Uh, my parents are actors. So I grew up in the world of stories, but it's a very different experience, at least to me, watching something on stage versus being read to or having a story told to you. Mm -hmm. um, but two of my earliest memories were, uh, Okay, when I was very small, I had a really great fear of the dark, and I had a babysitter named Leah, and I loved Leah, and she had beautiful red hair, and when reading stories wasn't helping me go to sleep, my mother would start to make up Leah stories, and so together we would weave these stories, and they were about things like her traveling into the dark, deep woods and seeing scary eyes, but in the end, it turned out they were only animals who were her friends. Mm -hmm. And my mother was very good at um, taking stories and making up little songs and things. And so I kind of learned to depend on stories as my security blanket. And a bit later when I lived with my father, the nights he was home from the theater, he would start reading to me from these massive novels, um, probably way too big for me at my age, you know, like reading me the Count of Monte Cristo when I think I was nine. Um, nice. but while he read to me, I would 
draw what I was seeing or hearing him say because I have a mm-hmm. difficult time picking up uh, information from speech. I'm really kinesthetic. And so I would draw while he would read to me. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while he would stop and say, okay, Genevieve, mm-hmm. now what does that mean? Okay, now <laughs> can you spell it for me? And so, um, you know, I can't remember a time mm-hmm. when stories didn't exist. So to me, everything became a kind of a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and even if we're, you know, even if we're not conscious of the stories swirling around us as being, you know, stories or, or tales with a capital T, they're, they're around us all the time, you know, so we're moving in a soup of stories, um, yeah. whether we're aware of it or not. Oh, yeah, constantly. Actually, I <laughs> I just recently um, went up north to the northern part of Oregon, mm-hmm. where some friends of mine have this really beautiful uh, piece of property. They were hosting a bunch of socially distanced um, workshops yeah. outside. And I ended up teaching a last minute storytelling workshop. Um, but it wasn't so much about, well, it wasn't just about the performing side of storytelling, but how we in fact tell stories constantly in our daily lives. And I'd been having a lot of discussions of late about how everything that we do in our daily life really um, is imbued with story and belief Mm -hmm. and how, you know, it can feel difficult in 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 our daily lives to relate to heroines and heroes in these epic grandiose tales when we have to get up and go to work and drink our coffee and use the bathroom and you know these ordinary things but what i tried to demonstrate through this workshop is that the way that you tell a story about a character and the way that you tell a story about yourself is not actually that different and in our daily lives, we have this habit of being negative and limiting and um, simplistic in our beliefs about ourselves. But when you examine beliefs that you hold about yourself and you can hear those beliefs come out of someone else's mouth as a story, it sheds this really mm, uh, moving light on what you hold true in your own life and therefore expands this possibility of being able to create new things in your life and um, becoming a hero in your own life. And, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, what, after all, is a dragon, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what is a dragon? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. but I mean, at least it informs you it, it it does but it's it kind of reminds me that there was um a few weeks ago uh, a, a friend came to me and asked for some help with a story that they were wanting to write and then tell as yeah. a, a story yeah uh and uh it was my first session kind of as a story doctor it's <laughs> great it's like, aha, okay, let's do this. I'm, I'm going to be the doctor and this is my the story is the, is the patient and we're going to kind of work on it together. Excellent. And in the course of our conversation, we were, we were speculating and it really is a speculation, but I, I, I think there's some truth in it at least mm-hmm. how 
there's a kind of um, kind of like a like a kind of geological stack um, of story natures, and when you have kind of when you go right down to the bottom of the the stack of these of these strata of these layers you've kind of got the, the mystery down there the, the 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 void the ground of being or whatever we're going to call it and then you come up slightly and you've got the the, the mythos of a a culture or a place or um a person even uh, depending on what angles you're looking at yeah. and then just above that you've got the actual myths yeah that that happen so yeah. you start to have um characters and events things going on and then above that you've kind of got legends which are kind of semi-historical they're starting to be some kind of weaving in with um things that happened or may have happened um but in some kind of before time where everything is kind of nebulous but also has a bit of bit of anchor in in our world and then you've got this whole kind of stack of kind of varying kinds of uh what we call folk tales or wonder tales or fairy tales um where the characters usually are moving in in a world which is similar to our own even if the the things that happen to them and the places they go kind of in the course of their adventures are are more um kind of magical in a way yeah, yeah. and then above that you've kind of got uh and that's that's a big chunk because there's all sorts of different different kinds of things going on in there mm. but above that you've you've got um kind of stories um that we pass down to each other like kind of the stories of what happened to uncle joe in the first world war um or things like that kind of the the historical stories that exist in families or exist mm -hmm. in culture this thing happened then and this is the story of of what happened and it has tendrils that go out and connect to, to every, loads of other stuff yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then you've got, kind of got anecdotes and then right at the top of that pile you've kind of got gossip yeah <laughs> and we were speculating that the kind of the further down um you go in that pile the more uh kind of primal powers you're you're evoking and dealing with and, and swimming with and the higher up you get the the kind of less that's going on you know when you're when you're gossiping you're not expecting to be really kind of working with uh, the energies of carly or um the the kind of the creation <laughs> well... of the universe and things like that I don't, I don't anyway perhaps your gossip is is more sophisticated than mine uh, um no. but but also in there's a, there's another thing happening where the the further down you go the less personal things are yeah and the higher up you get the more personal the more human and the more specific to kind of particular place and time yeah. um and and events yeah. and the speculation really was about how my favorite stories feel as though wherever they exist in that stack they've got a route that goes down all the way or as far down as as they can into either kind of legend myth or mythos or into kind of the mystery and branches that come up right up into the the top layers of that uh, so that they are um they are actually accessible to us as humans if a myth is told just in the layer 
that it exists in without any of those tendrils coming up into anecdote and gossip yeah. it's kind of it kind of drifts over us and maybe some of it sticks but a lot of it just just kind of passes away yeah, and i exactly. think this is kind of like why some of the the greek myths for example have survived and are retold so much because the characters are so petty <laughs> and so um yeah. you know humanly Human. yeah, um, exactly. full of faults and all of that certainly in the way that they've come down to us that they've kind of got hooks that we can we can hang on to yeah yeah exactly yeah so that's that, that's what I was thinking about that and it's like I, I don't know whether it's completely true or universally true but it's it was interesting to think about that in the context of creating a story it's like okay where is the the main um the main life of this story existing but how can we put some put some branches that come up to here and some roots that go right down to allow some some space for mystery to to come into what is being written or being told as well yeah no, that sounds like a good method. <laughs> um, uh, why are you a storyteller? Why am I a storyteller? Ah, okay, well, that that's an easy one, actually. That's an easy one. Okay, so um, it's kind of long-winded, though. <laughs> that's, um, that's okay. When I was... Uh, so, yeah, I heard all these Russian folk tales mm. and loved stories, loved reading when I was a kid. Um, and... Uh, then I grew up, kind of, and uh, <laughs> I have a sister who's a year and a half older than me, and she was the kind of artistic one of the family, and I was the the maths and science boy, really. Oh wow! And so um, okay. I, when I was a, in my late teens, I went went off to university and um, promptly dropped out of university, uh, not <laughs> once, not twice, but three times actually, studying theoretical physics and um ended up living on um do you have the do you, do you have the doll in, in uh, we have yeah, we know. have the equivalent of yeah. the doll yeah, uh, yeah. On, um, unemployment. unemployment yeah uh, yeah um living on the doll in edinburgh uh, in scotland mm. um in the mid early mid 1990s and i had a moment of good fortune uh, at that point i was living in this really shitty flat with water pouring down the inside of the walls oh, no. uh and really kind of barely keeping it together in yeah. one way or another but i decided that i was going to be a writer uh and i've yeah. been writing little bits and pieces for quite a while but it was it was really quite a, a leap of um extravagant bravado but i had a moment one morning where I'd been writing for a while, but this moment in May, and I think it was kind of 94, something like that, and a metaphorical window appeared before me yeah. uh, through which I could jump into a particular future. And the shape of this window was, you're going to write a novel. If you jump through this window today, metaphorical window, yeah, um, not yeah. actual windows, <laughs> yeah. um, then, then, then good, th good things will happen if you go through this window. If you let this window pass, then 10, 20, 50 years may pass and this window will not come again. Yeah. And being youthful, I jumped through the window and started writing a novel <laughs> and wow. bit off far more than I could chew. And I'm still trying to finish it 25 years later. Yeah, that's how uh, it goes. <laughs> but 
Yeah, yeah. But it was it was an extraordinary adventure. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I was writing pages and pages every day, mm. week after week, month after month. And emerging from my my flat to go and sell my record collection uh, to buy food so that I could carry on writing and building a stack and stack of, of manuscript. But every so often I would somehow... Uh, make it out of the flat to, to meet people mm. and go to parties and things. And uh, inevitably people would ask me, you know, so what, what do you do? Uh, you're not a student. What are you doing? And I would say, I'm a writer. Mm. And mm. they would then ask, what are you writing about? And I was so shy uh, back then. I really wouldn't say boo to a goose. And I would kind of mumble into my beard and I couldn't explain what it was that I was writing about at yeah. all. I didn't have the the skills on my tongue or the kind of boldness of my heart to say, aha, this is the story that I'm trying to tell. And part of that was trying to kind of keep it all kind of enclosed in this kind of alchemical mystery. But also yeah. it was just, I, I didn't know how to do it. And I was, I was kind of aware at the time that this was a... Um, this was a lack, really, that yeah. I, I needed to be able to do this. Yeah. And that with my I was that I was apprenticed to to language and to words and to story, but that I was only kind of I was skipping some of the classes and some of the classes were about speaking. <laughs> but I yeah. didn't do anything about it until about uh, I don't know, almost 10 years later, yeah. uh, still in Edinburgh, I was um you're going to get long-winded answers to all your questions, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a storyteller. <laughs> storyteller. Can I do? <laughs> that's, that's great. The um, long-winded answers are quite welcome uh -huh. here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, about 10 years later, I was, uh, I was helping run an open mic night in Edinburgh. Yeah. It was a fantastic open mic night called Kin. Yeah. It was acoustic, only original material. Mm. Uh, we had a big, big regular crowd. It was absolutely beautiful thing that happened every fortnight and in the course of this at some point I was I was starting to read a lot more Scottish history and mm. kind of Scottish mm -hmm. traditional Scottish culture stuff because I'd been there for kind of 10 years over 10 wow. years almost 15 years then in and in Edinburgh um uh, not not really no I kind wow. of round round and about but kind of always coming back to Edinburgh and in some shape or form yeah and uh, I'd become aware of this notion of the Cayley um, yeah. in Scottish culture or yeah, yeah. Gallic culture, particularly. And uh, I'm not talking about, for listeners who don't know, I'm not talking about what you might have come across as a Cayley, which is basically a barn dance yeah. where you have callers and everyone dances and swings everyone around. And people fall over and get drunk and it's fantastic, <laughs> really good fun. But yeah. it's not quite that. Um, no. What I was thinking of was more uh, traditional, like village Cayley, yeah. uh, where on certain nights people come together and they do their thing. So the fiddler plays the fiddle um, the poet will mm. recite some poetry um, maybe the kids will do a dance yeah. um, storyteller will tell a story and at that time I was really aware painfully aware that if I was to be invited to some hypothetical Kaylee I did not have anything that I could offer mm. yeah yeah. You know, I fartled about yeah. on the guitar, but I definitely wouldn't have played that in front of people. Um, you know, I hadn't memorized any poetry. I didn't really know how to do anything. And it was like, I felt like I was standing on Baba Yaga's doorstep. Yeah. 
Yeah. And her asking me to kind of give an account of myself and me just going, um, I don't know, I can, uh, I can do some uh, kind of differential equations for you uh, or explain the theory of relativity, but I can't do a, do a thing. <laughs> and there was a moment where it was like, ah, okay, I'm doing this thing, trying to write, still trying to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm aware of this, this lack uh, in myself of my um in my apprenticeship with with language and story i'm co-running this open mic night there's a hypothetical kaylee that i need to perform at the ob- only thing for me to do is to learn to tell stories yeah yeah, yeah. and so <laughs> it was really i was kind of forced into it by my own kind of um my own cosmology and mythology uh, I kind of backed myself into a corner where there was no other choice but to learn to tell stories and I was absolutely terrified um, oh, yeah. I really did not feel comfortable at yeah. all standing up in front of people yeah. doing that kind of thing I was also aware that I did kind of love it but at that time my, my confidence uh, you know you know the confidence that I'd had as a child had been kind of just completely destroyed by being a teenager and then you know early adulthood it was just like it's kind of staggering through the wreckage really and so I, I decided that I would I would start telling stories at this open mic night and I was faced with the predicament of being an Englishman in Scotland uh, even though I'd been there a long time and it's like oh what am I going to tell am I going to Am I going to do the kind of whole adopting the the Celtic world as my own and kind of tell Scottish tales and myths? And that felt a bit shit. Um, or am I going to tell kind of traditional English folk tales in Scotland? That's really going to go down well. Yeah, probably um, not. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. And then I remembered the Russian folk tales that I'd heard as a kid and which I, I loved so much. And it was like, this is where I'll I'll go. This is um, not only is it kind of safe territory, um, but they are also the best stories that I yeah. know. Yeah. So I, uh, one fateful evening, I started telling a story called Maria Morevna, um, which is a fantastic story uh, with about this amazing warrior queen and all kinds of other characters, including Kostchai the Deathless, who's uh, um, this eerie um kind of immortal uh skeletal figure anyway i started telling this story and we were meant to have like 15 minute slots and this is a story that takes about two and a half hours to tell properly (laughs) and so um i was so nervous before starting to tell this story that um in all honesty honesty i got so drunk and so stoned (laughs) that I couldn't see the audience Um, and as far as I was concerned I was telling this story to you know to the divine and that was that was between me and them and if other people wanted to be there for the experience then that was kind of their own business Mm, well done Uh, and unsurprisingly it was a total mess and I overran uh didn't even finish the story got about a third of the way through um but it left me with a taste for it and two two kind of useful bits of information which I didn't realize I learned from that until much later one of which was that I was terrified of my audience 
Yeah. Uh, and the other was that there was something in the experience for me that was about communicating with the, the more than human as well. And really, that's kind of been my adventure ever since, um, you know, kind of casually storytelling. I still casually storytell. I don't really do kind of intense storytelling. Um, but, you know, doing a bit here and there over the years uh, for a while. And then particularly when I moved down from Scotland to to Devon, yeah. eventually about 2010, yeah, yeah. and started doing a lot more telling and telling with with Rima playing music often um then I started taking it a little bit more um respectfully in a way and then when we when we built the, the hedge spoken truck um then suddenly storytelling was really a you know it was everyday yeah. bread and butter just tell stories just tell stories and I think it's fair to say that when you know kind of before Hedge spoken I was I was a pretty amateur storyteller and these days um I am by far not the best storyteller I know um <laughs> but, but but I'm a competent storyteller I know I know how to hold a story and I've learned some skills about crowds and yeah. I understand a bit about certain parts the magic of it and I'm very interested in it and people like seem to like hearing my stories so um yeah. I'm pretty happy with all of that really <laughs> very good very good that's, that's the short that's the short answer that's a short <laughs> excellent the wild god stands in your kitchen ivy is taking over your sideboard mistletoe has moved into the lampshades, and wrens have begun to sing an old song in the mouth of your kettle. I haven't much, you say, and give him the worst of your food. He sits at the table bleeding. He coughs up foxes. There are otters in his eyes. When your wife calls down, you close the door and tell her it's fine. You will not let her see the strange guest at your table. The wild god asks for whiskey, and you pour a glass for him, then a glass for yourself. Three snakes are beginning to nest in your voice box. You cough. Oh, limitless space. Oh, eternal mystery. Oh, endless cycles of death and birth. Oh, miracle of life. Oh, the wondrous dance of it all. You cough again, expectorate the snakes, and water down the whiskey, wondering how you got so old and where your passion went. The wild god reaches into a bag made of moles and nightingale skin. He pulls out a two-reeded pipe, raises an eyebrow, and all the birds begin to sing. So as someone who has now had a fair amount of experience as a regular storyteller, um, 
to those who might be just starting out and who have a yearning to become a storyteller um, mm. or even who just want to express themselves mm -hmm. more clearly. Yeah. Um, aside from just getting drunk or um, mm -hmm. uh, practice, where would you tell someone to begin or what advice, I suppose, would you have for someone who wants to start storytelling? Um, well, it's as with most things, it's, it's very simple and then not so simple at all. Um, so I teach storytelling now, um, run courses at the moment, um, with Hedgespoken, um, kind of one-off courses and then a, a longer course. And they're all really, um, based on quite a simple premise, which is that for, for storytelling, um to do a good storytelling yeah there are two parts to it okay yeah yeah this is this is the secret i'm just giving the secret away here so that no one <laughs> needs to come on the course um, oh no <laughs> no, no it's, it's, i'm happy to uh and the first part is to know your story really really well yeah and yeah. that's both that's got both some very straightforward kind of nuts and bolts stuff about how memory works yeah. and about how just how well you actually really know the story yeah. and yeah. practicing it and all that kind of dull stuff. Um, seemingly dull stuff. Seemingly um, dull stuff. But it's also got a lot of magic in it, which is about um, kind of inhabiting the story, walking with it, um, seeing what it does to you so that it becomes something which is not just something that you're aiming to be able to kind of parrot out as if you've got a... Um, a loudspeaker in your throat and you press the button and blah, 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 yeah. out comes the story. Yeah. Because really, if you want to do that, then why not just carry around a little amp and press the button? Yeah. Storytelling is, is alive and it's different every time, you know, and certainly the way I tell is not scripted. You know, I know the story, but the words that come out every time and the emphasis and, you know, certain things that happen, they're, they're all different. Yeah. But that comes from knowing the story really well so that I can yeah. stand on solid foundations and then kind of extemporize and kind of riff off things that are happening um, uh, with some ease. So that's the first part, know the story really, really well. And then the second part is tell it really, really well. Yeah, <laughs> that so simple. Know, know the story really well, tell it really well. Then you've got a great storytelling, absolutely simple. And the telling part also has some very simple nuts and bolts stuff and some kind of endless mystery stuff as yeah. well. But, you know, I think if, if I had to give the total nutshell thing, it would be know the story really well. Yeah. So that you're yeah. not, so that your primary fear is not forgetting the story. Yes. Because that's for most people when they start out and certainly me, that's the big deal. Um, especially if you're telling long tales. And I, I tend to tell stories that last for about an hour and a half. Wow. Um, and I went through probably about 10 years of telling stories that I didn't really know very well. So every time I, I did it, it was absolutely terrifying because oh. I'd be standing in front of all these people really clinging on by the skin of my teeth, yeah. not properly prepared um, in some kind of weird recurring self-initiatory nightmare um and that seems to be the, the way i did it and i i don't particularly recommend it no uh and the other thing that so there's that 
know the story well enough that you're that's not your primary fear and then develop a love relationship with the story because if you if you're in you know i all the stories i tell i my relationship with them is uh, that they are they are spirits or uh, they're people yeah they're entities these stories and i'm in love with them and that's why i want to share them with other people you know i want yeah. other people to develop have a chance to develop that kind of relationship with these stories that i have and so having that as the basis of your your relationship with the story tends to mean that when you introduce it to other people and you you try to kind of summon the the the, the spirit or the person of that story through the telling your enthusiasm for introducing this being is something that's got a bit more power and grace and subtlety and sophistication than as if you are than if you're just kind of a storyteller yeah telling a story you know that's just information that you're you're giving you know for some purpose but if you've kind of if you've got this this love relationship with the story and then you you carry that in the sense of isn't this an amazing thing here we are look there's there's this and there's this and there's this and you know the story really well those two things i think um will kind of serve you well to to get get going and you know carry on right through then there's some you know there's some subtlety as well (laughs) and there's some stuff about people and crowds and how you how you uh how you hold people's attention how you how you are how what kind of storyteller do you want to be you know my my style is is kind of conversational and pretty simple because i feel very strongly that certainly most of the stories that i tell they're folk medicine you know they're not um they're not kind of high energy um kind of sacred things they are Mm. they're things that people have told around fires um you know for thousands of years in some cases and so i like to make it as um simple and everyday and ordinary in a way as i can so that the magic of the story can do its thing rather than the the style of telling or the um the 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 kind of arena i've set up for for Mm. it to be told in Mm -hmm. um and that's not everyone's way it seems to be my way um and yeah 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 well okay let me ask you then um because you are also a writer um, now that you are more comfortable in the storytelling arena than perhaps you once were. Um, okay, well, I guess I should say to me, writing and storytelling are two very different things. Um, and I wonder, do you get more satisfaction from one than the other now? Um, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> I've got two small children. Yeah. So uh, uh, our eldest is six, youngest is two. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get a whole lot of writing done <laughs> these days, <laughs> whereas yeah. I get a lot of storytelling done. 
Yeah. You know, because it's immediate, it's there. I don't need any tools. Yeah. Um, I'm telling stories to my kids. I'm, I'm reading stories. I'm, you know, I'm moving in a kind of story, story stream most of the time. So what I tend to do these days rather than writing is I have a, a voice recorder um, of some kind with me most of the time and I record things. And then when I have a chance, I transcribe um, and work at it this way. And this is kind of partly out of necessity and partly out of an interest in how different um, the act of creation is through using the voice yeah. Uh, yeah especially when i'm out um out in the wilds than having a piece of paper uh, and scribbling down on that which seems more and more like a quite a strange thing to do when you're sitting in the immensity of the wonder um but what i have noticed kind of in kind of direct relevance to your question is that certainly in my fiction now what I know about story, what I've learned about how stories work and what does work and what doesn't, that is definitely influencing it a lot more. Um, Interesting. And I think most of all, the you know, when I'm telling a story, the, the image I often have is of weaving a thread for um, myself and the audience to follow. Yeah. And my skill as a storyteller, um, insofar as I have any, is to weave a strong thread that that we can all travel along through the, the kind of story space yeah. and then come back down to earth at the other end. And I think when I started writing kind of way, way back, I, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. And I was... I was interested in ideas and, um, yeah. you know, I kind of approached it as if it was a set of secrets that I was encoding uh, that, you know, some of which would be visible and some wouldn't. And it was this kind of, I think, quite a, quite a postmodern approach to um, writing a, what's essentially a story. And now when I'm certainly kind of when I go back to that work and, I, and rework it and when I'm writing new stuff it's with a sense of that thread again that yeah. my role as the yeah. writer is not dissimilar to my role as a storyteller to make that thread strong so yeah. that we can all travel along it so it's much more about telling the story than it is creating this vast hyper-dimensional object that you know the the the, the cognoscenti will be able to understand um yeah. yeah yeah well it's it's interesting that you say all of that because to me that is all very apparent in your writing um and actually I, I guess I should say I I love words and I love stories I love literature um non-fiction fiction poetry I love words um but all the pieces that I'm drawn to, um, whether they are works of fiction or not, whether they are works of poetry or not, they maintain that sort of thread, as you said, this sort of um, quiet, connected balance um, between, 
as you were saying earlier, something that has deep roots that reach back into mythos and philosophy and liminal spaces, but also have a very tangible grittiness to them, um, elements of the ordinary, elements of uh, um, urgent living immediacy. Um, and that to me was, is, 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 is just imbued in your writing. Great. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, but I think like many people, I was first introduced to your work through sometimes a wild God, which is an incredible poem. Um, and I don't want to focus too much on that one right now because I'm sure everyone asks you about that. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, I'm I'm always happy to to talk about it. It's a mystery to me as well. So, but but, but carry on. But the one that that really actually grabbed me um, was Nettle Eater, um, and it, so. And it could be because I'm probably partially mad. <laughs> um, but I was I was reading this this articulate retelling of a man who stayed out on the moors eating nothing but nettles for a year. And um it it I don't know. I couldn't tell if it was real or not. Um, because I've I've done things like this. Like the first time I went to Scotland, I I decided I was going to find a bothy in the middle of the mm-hmm. highlands without a map. And I went out there with a banjo and a guitar and a couple of sandwiches determined to find one. And I found one, but I also almost died in the process. But I remember reading this and feeling this, this palpable, like all of these, these, these intense descriptions and experiences, and they seemed so vivid and real to me. And I thought, did, did this guy actually go out and do this? Did, did he in fact go out and f- pretty much fast in the wilderness for a year? Um, but then I read that you had actually based this off of Milarepa. Milarepa? How do you say that? Milarepa, the yeah. Tibetan saint. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, um. so uh, yeah, I guess... I know that you are also a wilderness guide, and so I suppose I'm wondering, at the risk of dissecting poetry, which is never a good idea, how much is true? Um, How much of this is poetry? How much of it is um, story or or myth, I guess? So, so Milarepa is, he was a... um, he was a very naughty boy. Uh, he, um, I can't remember when when he was supposed to have lived, uh, mm-hmm. possibly 8th century or something like that in Tibet. And he um, uh, developed all manner of, of occult powers mm-hmm. and learned dark magics and ended up um, killing at least one of his um his enemies or someone who who pissed him off in some way and then he had a great repentance and um to cut a long story short there's his story is amazing um there's a great comic book of of his life actually um (laughs) he went and lived in a cave uh for seven years eating nothing but nettles wow and he turned green and he learned to fly okay and (laughs) became 
uh, in the end, he, he's he's basically Tibet's best loved saint. Huh. Yeah, and he's yeah. Uh, if I remember rightly, he's always pictured with this conch to his ear, listening to the sound of the universe. Yeah, huh. he's uh, he's quite a dude, and um, so he's his echo or footsteps or wing beats or nettle cast-offs are <laughs> all over <laughs> Nettle Eater. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But as much as he's there, Nettle Eater is really a love letter to the spirit of Dartmoor, mm. um, this place where it all the where that story takes place. Mm. Um, and all the writing that I do that makes its way out into the world is my attempt to tell the truth about things that it is not possible to tell the truth about if you approach them directly in a straight line. Yeah. 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 In the same way that um, trackers uh, tracking animals in all sorts of cultures won't speak the name of the the creature that they're tracking, but will use a kind of euphemistic or metaphorical language about the the thing that they're that they're trying to the, the being that they're trying to to hunt. Yeah. Out of respect, but also out of kind of not wanting to, um, as I understand it, at least, not scare it off yeah. by um, kind of boldly stating its name and sending these reverberations out and the things that I'm interested in in writing about and talking about are like that it's all my attempts to stalk uh truth yeah told in particular ways and so sometimes a wild god um was my attempt to do that yeah. Uh, and Nettle Eater was my attempt to do that about a slightly different kind of truth. Um, yeah. But in a way, sometimes a wild god is kind of a story of wildness lost and the, yeah. the kind of rearrival yeah. of wildness. And Nettle Eater could be read, and this wasn't intended to be this way, but it could be read as, okay, what next? Yeah. Um, you know, when when that decision has been made to uh, listen to that voice, yeah. what, what happens then? And the what the character in Metal Eater gets up to, what the narrator gets up to, um, is certainly not a field guide to how to um, take care of yourself in the wild. No. Um, uh, absolutely not. No. But it is... Um, it is my attempt to, to speak truthfully in the language um, that I have available to me of kind of image and wonder. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that. Which is to say, I'm not. I'm not really going to answer your question. But. <laughs> <laughs> the fox leaps into your eyes. Otters rush from the darkness. The snakes pour through your body. 
your dog howls, and upstairs your wife both exults and weeps at once. The wild god dances with your dog. You dance with the sparrows. A white stag pulls up a stool and bellows hymns to enchantments. A pelican leaps from chair to chair. In the distance, warriors pour from their tombs. Ancient gold grows like grass in the fields. Everyone dreams the words to long-forgotten songs. The hills echo and the grey stones ring with laughter and madness and pain. In the middle of the dance, the house takes off from the ground. Clouds climb through the windows. Lightning pounds its fists on the table. The moon leans in. The wild god points to your side. You are bleeding heavily. You have been bleeding for a long time. Possibly since you were born. There is a bear in the wound. Why did you leave me to die? asks the wild god. And you say, I was busy surviving. The shops were all closed. I didn't know how. I'm sorry. Listen to them. The fox in your neck, and the snakes in your arms, and the wren, and the sparrow, and the deer. The great, unnameable beasts in your liver, and your kidneys, and your heart. Yeah, what you said about stalking or hunting truth um, really hit something. I, I've always felt, and I've gotten in trouble for it, but I've always felt that truth is rarely something that you can just pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, it's many faceted. It's it's mm-hmm. many perspectived. Yeah. <laughs> um, y- you can say something directly, but that doesn't mean that you've acknowledged the profound depth of it. Or you can express a truth. Um, but mm-hmm. but the real deeper truths, I think, need to be teased out. You know, mm-hmm. and and in story, in poetry, in metaphor, I can incite so much honesty by talking about the color, and the shape, and the smell of an apple more than just saying an apple is an apple. Um, and and I feel that way about truth in general. And I feel like um, I I am in every story that I write. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's not about me. Sometimes by using these these metaphors, these myths, these feelings, you you can mm-hmm. you can talk more honestly about a subject than if you were to just say the thing. And like a nettle eater, I you know, you're never prepared for the reality of a story. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. people make like a big deal about adventures, but they forget the basics. Like you have to use the restroom. It's cold in a storm, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, that kind of um, that hero's journey kind of approach is, as I see it, kind of sometimes a necessary bit of bravado and kind of yang medicine to actually take you out of your door across the threshold um but then it it, you know whenever i've um done the wilderness vigil you know kind of the four days and nights of fasting alone out in the wilds you know pretty soon that energy collapses into the the um absurdity and discomfort of your situation um and you're yeah. on a very very different trajectory yep. usually for me um <laughs> it's generally <laughs> an extremely uncomfortable experience for, yeah. for quite a long time um yeah. but just going uh there was something you were saying yeah uh, when you brought stories back in to this this notion of telling the truth and the, the tracking um yeah, yeah. there's so many questions about come up about what do the stories mean what is the meaning of this story what's you know what's what's it about what's it about what's it about and i'm less and less well with awareness that some of the stories are definitely about stuff (laughs) i am i am much more inclined these days to let listeners see what happens to them yeah with the listening you know there are so many ways that truth and meaning are um kind of woven into stories but ultimately the story is itself yeah and if it could be told shorter more different or more you know kind of concisely and and all of that then then it would be something else but yeah that's not what we're engaged in here then we're not trying to yeah, then they're not encodings of meaning in that particular kind of way. Or if they are, they're in a much more sophisticated way than the way that we generally want thing, which things which is in bullet points and flowcharts. Yeah. 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 Um, the way of stories is is very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, I feel like talking about truths and talking about stories, they're both, they require a lot of dancing. Um, but Okay. So, so, um, I know you said that each time you sell, you tell a story, it's different. Um, where then is the line for you in changing a story? How, how far do you feel? Is it okay to impose your own artistic voice upon a story? It's very, you know, this, this dangerous question. <laughs> yeah. I know mean, this is. This is something that's changed down the years a lot mm-hmm. um, and which I've, yeah, had different perspectives on. Mm. But if we come back to this notion of a story in some sense being uh, a person or being that you have a relationship with, there is this question of if you change a story, are you doing something to the the integrity of mm-hmm. this being that you have a relationship with yeah and sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no yeah and my test of this is really to go out and tell a story in the form that i've encountered it to the trees and to 
dead people um, <laughs> in graveyards, um, not yep. actual just corpses. Um, yep. uh, uh, Cemeteries yeah, are great. Given, given the opportunity. Um, <laughs> and, and to then listen. To, to see what happens because it my experience is that that that's the testing ground yeah. so if so th- there's a story that i'm going to tell uh this coming thursday for edge spoken picture house called the castle of melvales yeah which is a welsh romany um story and for listeners who don't know what romany are they're what yeah. most people would know as gypsies yeah, yeah. so yeah. um the welsh romany story castle of melvales i started telling about six years ago something like that and the form that i tell it in is different in some ways from the story that i encountered mm. and in the process of learning it i would go out um because we were living on the road then and i was gearing up to tell it at this um little kind of festival fair event thing mm. uh, that the dark mountain project were putting on mm. at Embercombe in devon and um so in my audience was going to be uh, martin shaw oh, wow. and david abram wow uh, yeah so yeah. it was like hey, right. yeah. <laughs> I, need to, I need to no pressure <laughs> i need to do do well it yeah um uh and uh, so I was learning this story and, and kind of feeling my way into it. And every time I got to a particular part, there was just this kind of jarring, this kind of dropping feeling. Mm. And eventually I was, I was out one morning and I was like, okay, what is going on here? And I was telling it to some some birch trees, uh, I like birch trees. near where we were parked up. And <laughs> uh, what shall I do? And, you know, not to beat around the bush, I listened and I heard... This is what happens here. Boom, 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 boom. Hmm. This is this bit goes in there. What are you going to do about that? And so I was faced with this dilemma of, on the one hand, I'm a big advocate for listening to what trees tell you to do. Um, but on the other hand, I believe at that point, I really wasn't into tampering with stories at all. Yeah. And at that moment, I had to decide, am I essentially, am I a folklorist or am I a storyteller? Yeah. Yeah, And it was like, okay, I have a living relationship with this story and I respect the integrity of it and yeah. the, the being of this story. But the way I'm going to tell it, it has these bits in it that yeah. are ever so slightly different. And that's the way I've told it ever since. And I think it's a better story for that. Yeah. And I think that stories evolve and, and change, certainly sometimes by accident in the telling, yeah. Um, yeah. but also in the hearing you know, when I hear people tell my stories back to me, yeah. I'm like, dragon? <laughs> <laughs> no, there wasn't a dragon in my story, but there's, there's, a, there's a dragon in your story now. And, and this is human. This is how it works. And so as far as I'm concerned, as soon as a story leaves my lips and goes to the ear and heart of someone else, there's there's scope for it changing. And I think the stories have their, their own kind of their own lives basically so so they go on but there's the caveat to all of that is that if you just my feeling is that if I just piss around with stories to try and make them better with a kind of you know thin kind of say a thin kind of political sense or a, um, a, a sense that is not rooted 
down in the the kind of territory of the story maker itself then then i'm kind of pissing in its beer you know oh Uh, so it's 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 not a respectful kind of thing don't do that yeah don't do that so yeah Uh, so, so that's that's how i feel about that but i'm much less hung up about it now than i was because yeah stories change and um at the end of the day i i'm interested in having an alive relationship with stories yes and with storytelling um and i'm also interested in trying things and so sometimes i'll try something and it it doesn't work and it's like ah okay just go back to basics um you know and also this is a big subject, but, you know, storytelling is very cool these days. It certainly wasn't like 15, 20 years ago, um, or certainly kind of not as widely known as it is now. Um, and we've kind of getting to a stage where we are starting to put stories on pedestals as, yeah. you know, okay, the story. Now yeah. we have the story and then we kind of all sit and we absorb and we kind of, ah, oh, the wisdom and all of this kind of stuff. And... Uh, again, kind of coming back to this being folk medicine, I kind of there's an urge in me to call bullshit on on some of that, yeah. because some of the stories that that we tell, a lot of the stories that we tell, they are mishmashes of like three different stories that have met at some crossroads and are kind of dressed up, standing on each other's shoulders with yeah. an, with an overcoat that they've stolen <laughs> from somewhere else, and so they are they're kind of mongrels, you know, and yeah. that's why they why they have this kind of strength of life, uh, and yeah. some of them. But some of them they they are so multifaceted and multidimensional and they have you know kind of fragments of stuff that actually happened that's kind of tagged on there and then the stories move to a new place so you mm-hmm. change all the names and instead of a dragon it's um like a hydra or something yeah. that people know is a monster mm-hmm. and you know it's kind of they they're morphing and the people who tell them especially as my gut tells me that when traveling people tell stories they change them all the time because you're telling stories to people in different places and in different contexts but you're often telling stories to make money as well to live and so there's an importance that the stories are are entertaining and alive and captivating yeah exactly um so so there's all of those things going on and that's a possibly a class of stories that i'm talking about which are kind of folk tales in the general soup of our culture that are freely available there's a whole other set of stories sacred stories you could call them although it's a bit of a kind of dodgy shorthand as well (laughs) and you kind of fuck with them at your peril um really you know, it's like, just just don't do it. Yeah. Um, and if you can't tell the difference between a sacred story and a kind of folk soup story, then you need to hone your sense of, of what story is. So there's yes. a story that I used to tell for a few years that I found in a, a book of, uh, it was an account of a, a, a sea voyage um, around kind of the, the coast of Siberia and huh. then kind of, you know, up into the kind of 
North American Turtle Island kind of territory. Yeah. And it was an amazing four-volume book. Uh, and I found a story in there that they had they had come across uh, in Siberia from the Chukchi people. And it's this fantastic story. It's so weird and yet so familiar. It has elements that you see, uh, say, in, actually, there's a direct parallel between that and Maria Morevna, this first story that I told, this Russian yeah. folktale. Uh, but there's some really crazy, weird shit that's just out of this world. And I loved it. Uh, and at that time, I think I was engaged in the practice that a lot of us storytellers do, which is this hunt for, you know, the kind of, the really fun, funky new story that no one else has told yeah. and you kind of you, oh, you know we kind of say to each other oh I found this, this you know, amazing story kind yeah. of from you know this really Special obscure story. source and everything um and so I was really pleased to have found this story and I told it a few times and you know it puts the hairs up on people's necks and yeah. it's really uncanny and all of that and then after a few years I was like Tom what are, you, what are you doing because I knew that actually for the the particular group of Chukchi people that this story had come from to them it was an incantation used for calming storms oh, wow. so you tell stories to the weather to to you know affect change and that's what that story was for it wasn't yeah. you know maybe they told it as entertainment as well but that wasn't my not my awareness of it and it was like this is this is chukchi magic for doing the particular thing in their place just back off don't yeah. be a dick yeah don't be that acquisitive <laughs> i can have everything yeah. kind of storyteller so i put it down i haven't told it since um uh yeah. and so yeah that was a good learning for me yeah um, yeah well speaking of stories as incantation then so you freely admit that magic is real i guess <laughs> um is it of course of course it is <laughs> um uh there's a lot i don't know about magic mm. uh and there you know we could talk about what you mean by magic and all well, that kind of, of thing and yeah. kind of evade a little that way um Sneaky. yes yes it is but it's not as important as we make it out to be mm. um that's yeah that's <laughs> okay. which is to say that the, the you know okay so in my 20s i was really hung up on the miraculous yes um you know i i wanted i wanted miracle powers um oh, yeah. because to me that that would have been a kind of proof that my my sense of how the universe worked was correct hmm. and that um my sense of how things should be was uh in accordance with with how they actually were yeah. and so like you know most people i spent you know how many hours trying to levitate things um or <laughs> yeah. you know trying to uh you know read the read the minds of people predict the future what, what's what's the, the person coming around the next corner what color are the clothes they're wearing going to yeah. be you know um and you know all this all this kind of stuff mm, and um so yeah i was quite into uh having all that proved to me mm. And there's stuff that I'm not going to talk about 
but I'll allude to um, <laughs> okay. experiences that are outside the description of reality that um, is commonly accepted, consensual yeah. reality, um, which I've had, which yeah. make it very clear to me that, um, you know, at the very least, there is far more in heaven and earth than <laughs> is contained in my philosophy. Yeah. Um so there's that and that awareness that there's all this other stuff going on. Yeah. But as I get older, you know, I'm 48 now and my, my sense of what's important has kind of finally started to shift away from that obsession with magic and the miraculous yeah. uh, into a particular kind of magic that I'm interested in. And this brings us back to the truth and good storytelling mm. so my experience of um poetry and art and people speaking and mm. storytelling is that when the truth is being told and will not nitpick about what that means <laughs> something happens to reality and my picture for that is kind of borrowed from Anglo, old Anglo-Saxon magic or the Anglo-Saxon kind of uh, mystical sense of the universe, which is that um, there are threads that uh, are fibers that um, are invisible to most of us that kind of connect all the things together it's a bit like the net of indra in a way but it's kind of my sense of it is a more kind of vertical thing for some reason and that the the anglo-saxon um uh whatever they were called the seers or magicians of, of the anglo-saxon world they knew how to make those fibers sing in particular ways to effect change in this reality yeah. Uh, particularly so for healing or for causing harm or whatever they're up to and it's my experience that when when truth is being told i whatever form it's coming in uh with a particular presence accompanying it those fibers start to sing and resonate and hum mm -hmm. and that field that is then generated by those fibers humming has an effect on the people and beings and place where that is occurring mm. and so that's the kind of magic that I'm that I'm interested in it's like okay I have a model for what is happening mm. um, but what I'm interested in doing is get is getting the effect yeah yeah so my you know I was a lot of what I do with storytelling is kind of passing through different stages of fear. And I was mm. talking about the fear of forgetting a story at the beginning of this, um, as you know, kind of the first thing that you, you tend to, to happen. Now my fear such as it is, is that I will not witness the effect of the fibers singing. Yeah. Yeah. So that my presence and my truth telling in this slant wise form will not have been strong enough or um, coherent or well 
well made enough to make them sing yeah yeah you're kind of the um you're using the perfect metaphor um considering this podcast is called the loom ah yeah Um, of course yeah there we go yeah (laughs) for some reason what that brought up for me um, something i haven't thought of in a long time i had like a pre-quarter life crisis when i was 16 and i remember being in my in the car with my mother and just sobbing thinking whatever I do in this world has to subtly affect everything in the world even beyond the world and I don't need to be recognized for it I just need to know that I can feel that it's happened and if I I can't figure out what the lens is for me to be able to do that then I don't know what I'm doing here (laughs) um that's what that made me think of yeah yeah but you know, I think you can feel that in a small way. There are certain moments when you're on stage and you can feel things reverberating. Yeah, yeah. It's subtle, Absolutely. but profound. Yeah. Um, just overwhelmingly powerful at the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you're, you know, if you, um, if you go and listen to someone speaking, you know, to a, to a large audience, where where they are uh, able to carry that quality and make mm. make the the fibers sing it's such an extraordinary thing and i you know every so often in the past i've forgotten about it and then i, I go to something uh and it's like oh yeah oh yeah that's what happens that's what happens when when the truth is spoken yeah. in this particular kind of way it that we've been, been talking about yeah um because it's you know it's yeah. beautiful and powerful and vital. And uh, that's what I'm interested in at the moment, particularly is how do you how do you cultivate that quality in um, in your speech? Yeah. You know, especially as a storyteller, but you know, also in in speaking to one another across these these strange distances yeah. how how do you can it be something that you cultivate consciously and if so i know for example i am getting better at speaking to people in a way which which makes this this thing happen yeah. so, and if so can i can i teach anything yet about what that is is that useful um, or is it just part of that, you know, thing we do where we get a tiny little piece of experience of something and then being fucked up people of the 21st century will want to become teachers of that immediately. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, you know, in the context of teaching storytelling, this is the, the part that, you know, really people's ears prick up at, partly because we're all still, we all still want to know about magic. Um, yeah but also because it has that kind of vitality and, um, you know, it's, it's a, a thing of great wonder. Um, so this thing of kind of what yeah. I'm currently terming eloquence, even though it's kind of the wrong word for it, and I don't mean how to use fancy language or anything like that, but how to how to do that that magical thing. It's like a kind of... Um, yeah. Kind of magic, magical rhetoric, I suppose. But that's a sh- really clumsy term. So I'm not, I'm not <laughs> no, no, I like that. it. I like it. I think it's good. But like living eloquence, 
it's it's mm. it's actually the first story that I did an episode of for this podcast is um the story of Saix and Alcyon. Um I don't know if you know it. It's a Saix and Alcyon. It's a Greek myth where I think the Latin pronunciation is like say okay. and Alcyon. It rings a bell. Um well it's a Greek myth that not many people know it. And I'm always astonished by that because I think it's just one of the best. Um, I discovered it through Mary Zimmerman's and, and the Looking Glass Theatre Company's production um, of Metamorphosis, which I saw mm. when I was 16. Um, and in it, she takes a number of Greek myths and weaves them together. Um, and I just remember at 16 walking out of there absolutely changed because that was the first time I'd seen a play that was more like storytelling and it Mm -hmm. was so just stunning and, 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 and moving and, and real. Um, but one of the things that's written in this show, in the show notes is that when a company wants to produce the show, it has to be done around an actual body of water. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it done once without a body of water because, um, the theater kept trying, but the pool, kept breaking and flooding the theater so finally they just were like we're just gonna not tell anybody and hope we don't get in trouble but it's it was beautiful it was done with silks it was choreographed it was not the same show um it's it's a known thing in theater when you have fire or or even piles of earth on stage water on stage Mm. people wake up in a different way and at first you might think it's because of the unpredictable nature of having live fire Mm. or water on stage but even just piles of sand there's something about the tangibility of earth and 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 living elements but when you have these tangible things and to me i feel like stories are so tied to earth Mm. yeah i don't i don't see as much theater as i would like i love theater uh, and when I was really young, the, the area <clears throat> I grew up in uh, is East Anglia, on the, on the east of England, uh, and the particular part of it that I grew up in was called the Waveney Valley, which always makes people laugh because it's a very flat part of the world, and the notion of there, there being enough of anything to, to call a valley is quite funny. But there's a river, and it doesn't kind of, it actually it bursts its banks all the time because the banks aren't very high and just spreads out over these water meadows. But for one reason or another, um, in the mid, early seven, early 70s, um, a lot of uh, creative folk moved to, to that part of the world. And all through the uh-huh. 70s and into the 80s, there were these amazing fairs um, not like music festivals, but they were, they were kind of more like medieval fairs uh, that went on called uh, the Barsham Fairs and the Albion Fairs. Yeah, and yeah. there were some theatre companies that used to do stuff at those, which I can still remember. Not any of the visual image, you know, I mean, maybe one or two, but the feeling of it. And it was this outdoor, crazed, beautiful um, a live theatre that I have barely ever seen since. 
and so often, you know, I love going to the theatre because it's really exciting, and the the aliveness of actors on stage and, and the the you know the terror of it, um, I, I find really interesting, um, in, the, in the intensity. But this thing of of theatre outside, in the chaos of a fair yeah. with you know horse trading going on over there, and you know tribes of kids just wandering about willy-nilly and just music going on and all all of that and then suddenly you've got this this story being told in this incredibly powerful um kind of usually masks and stilts and you know kind of all that kind of anarcho theater stuff that feeling is um is something that was a total guiding star when we were setting up Hedge Spoken yeah, for what yeah. what we were trying to kind of, you know, be part of the lineage of that kind of thing. And what we do is a much kind of humbler offering than that kind of great flamboyance. But yeah. we certainly still feel that we're kind of going along in some of the same cart tracks as that, um, which is an interesting place to be. Um, and you know we've we've put on some shows that we did we did a show last year of a of a Lithuanian folktale uh, which we called Iron Brow and Thorncoat. It wasn't last year because not last year we we're in lockdown. The year before last year has just, just completely di- disappeared. Um, no, and um, and for that we were able finally we got some funding and we had some musicians and we had um puppets and masks and storytelling going on and it was just extraordinary it was it was really really beautiful you're a mask maker as well right no 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 uh oh yeah (laughs) 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 yeah I, I have I have made I have made some masks. Um, I used to used to make some masks um, quite a long time ago. Now, um, uh, I don't think I really qualify as a mask maker. Um, but the the masks that were made for this were just extraordinary. Rima designed them and made part of them. Mm. Um, and uh, and there's a whole other story about that. But. Um, it was really interesting to come yeah. way, way back as a storyteller yeah. to be suddenly involved in theatre and this very, very different thing where suddenly you're having to give cues to to things happening and you have to say the same words for that cue to to happen. Certainly the way that we'd, yeah. we'd worked it and designed it. Um, so there's a big learning curve there about how, how you work with other people in, in that kind of world. Yeah, my earliest memories are, well, just after I was born, my my parents were part of the Vita Shakespeare Festival, which was the last traveling Shakespeare Festival in the States. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I was rather old for my age and well-spoken for three or four years old, <laughs> apparently. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I ended up performing and my earliest memories are being on stage with my parents outside next to lakes and in the middle of the redwood forests performing with 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 these actors for these massive groups of people um, sprawled between the trees eating like medieval recipe pies and there's just nothing like 
theater outside like that. Certainly. It's something that I long for every day of my life and you just can't go back, but it's, there's something magical about having this entire world built for you in the middle of the actual living world. It's, there's just nothing like it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I know it is late at night, and so I'm going to ask you my last question. Yeah. Um, since we're talking about the the natural outside world, is there a particular um, plant or tree or um, or animal, I guess, uh, that you feel a particular kinship with? I know you you write about animals uh, and plants a lot in your poetry. So just wondering if there's a particular one that speaks to you. I do. There's a lot that goes on with animals. Um, oh, you know what? I, I don't. I, I have lots of relationships with plants. Uh, and <laughs> the best of those relationships stand out as having, you know, a really singular quality for that, mm. that plant. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm easily won over by plants. <laughs> and so every time, every new season that comes along, I'll encounter again the the plants of that season and suddenly I'm like oh, oh yes, <laughs> you uh, yeah. and I fall in love again and again and again um, you know throughout the year with with different plants but if there's one plant that gladdens my heart every time I see it there are there are so many but I'm thinking um I'm thinking about being out on the moor mm. and mm -hmm. just how much I love hawthorn trees. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, out on the moor, they're one of the few trees that um, that survive. And you get these incredibly kind of half-blown-over, kind of twisted, trunked hawthorns. Mm. And at the moment here, and this is probably why I'm saying hawthorn at the moment, we've got the leaves of the hawthorns just coming out in the last, you know, three, four days. We've had a bit of sunshine. Yeah. And so these beautiful, just tiny, perfect, sweet and succulent hawthorn leaves are starting to be really the first green that comes into the hedge, the hedgerows here. You know, we're blessed with these incredible ancient hedges and yeah. some places around here that are just packed full of different different beings um yeah. so i would say hawthorn you know if i'm uh if i'm heart sore then and i'm out on the moor i will go and sleep under a hawthorn for a while oh. and um with a certain trust yeah that i wouldn't give to a a blackthorn <laughs> well yeah reasonable <laughs> i wouldn't either <laughs> <laughs> no. but yeah there are, there are all sorts of other plants that um that i have delicious relationships with but but yeah that's the one that springs to mind good. it's not like i have one one plant which is the mm. the thing i work with yeah um 
And I'll, I'll probably remember that that isn't even true in about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> then I've, Excellent. Yep, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so very, very much for being here and for your time. Where can people find your work? So you can find my, my writing at tomhirons.com. Uh, there's uh, some of the pieces we've mentioned. You can read Natalita or Sometimes a Wild God. You can listen to me reading Sometimes a Wild God. You can find all that kind of stuff there and you can buy the books there as well. Uh, and yeah, what else? What else is going on? That's that's kind of it. There's all sorts of secret stuff in the, in the pipeline, of course. And I'm teaching more. So yeah, that's a, that's a big, big part of what I'm doing at the moment. Actually, I've just finished teaching uh, a five session course to the guides at the Animus Valley Institute, teaching them storytelling skills, which was um, wow. really extraordinary experience. Um, yeah. And that a lot has come out of that, which is, um, I'll be feeding back into the, the sessions that I'm running this year. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, 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 good things. Good things. Good things. Well, thank you so very much for your time and this conversation. And I'm sorry, I know you got up early and no, it's so no, late. Absolutely lovely to speak with you. Uh, and yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I enjoyed our conversation. And I hope that yep. um, listeners find some good, nutritious crumbs for their souls <laughs> in what we've spoken about. I suspect they will. Most definitely. Thank you. The wild god nods his head and you wake on the floor holding a knife, a bottle and a handful of black fur. Your dog is asleep on the table. Your wife is stirring far above. Your cheeks are wet with tears. Your mouth aches from laughter or shouting. A black bear is sitting by the fire. Sometimes a wild god comes to the table. He is awkward and does not know the ways of porcelain, of fork and mustard and silver. His voice makes vinegar from wine and brings the dead to life. You have been listening to The Loom. I want to say a massive thank you to Tom Hirons for his generous time and words. In addition to printings of his work and the artwork of Remus Staines, which can be purchased through hedgespokenpress.org, Tom is available for private coaching and editing sessions, and you are cordially invited to take part in any of the amazing Feral Angels Poetry Cafe sessions, which he regularly hosts online and which I can attest to personally. They're absolutely inspiring. Coming up in May of 2022, Tom will be leading the Mead of Poetry Wilderness Vigil, a four-day guided fasting retreat in Dartmoor, Devon. 
And later on, in August, he will be hosting the Feral Angels Poetry Camp, a week-long writing and camping excursion into the wilds of West Wales. To hear some of Tom and Rima's breathtaking storytelling, check out the links in the show notes or have a visit over at Hedgespoken Picture House on YouTube. The two songs you heard in today's episode were composed by Sergei Quadrado, and they are used courtesy of the Free Music Archive. Our theme song is Granin's Bastu, which is arranged and performed by the band Varelsa. This interview took place in March of 2021. If you would like to gain early access to episodes, or view video versions of these interviews, or if you simply want to support my work in the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash songs for dark times. Lastly, if you enjoy these episodes, please do consider leaving a rating and review and sharing them with your friends so that others can find them. It really, really does help. I wish you all the happiest spring and the most fruitful of new beginnings. Once again, my name is Genevieve. All the best to you until we meet again. <laughs>